Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VO. In this episode, I am joined by Professor James Field. James is Professor of Restorative Dentistry and Dental Education at Cardiff University. Alongside this role, James also works as Director of Learning and Teaching and Director of Digital Education for the School of Dentistry. James is also a National Teaching Fellow and has worked extensively with other universities here in the UK and internationally to reform curriculum as the global lead for shaping the future of dental education into professional education. In this episode, I speak with James about the operative skills teaching environment and how innovations in this area have transformed education over time. I also lean on James to explicate how he thinks changes to this environment will impact dentistry education going forward. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed speaking with James and I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Good morning, James. Thank you so much for joining me today for Transforming Education. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nihal, how are you doing? I'm very well. Um, it is really lovely to have you on the show today. I think I opened up to you a couple of weeks ago and mentioned, you know, I'm not a dentist. Um, my knowledge of dentistry expands to the six-month uh, checkup that I have, uh, and I'm not a specialist in this area whatsoever, but you have a very interesting role, which I think our listeners will um, will have a lot to learn from in that you are a dentist, you, you specialise in that area, but you're also uh, a specialist educator and teacher within within that field. So uh, I'd, I know today we're looking to, to talk a little bit about the operative skills teaching environment. And just for the benefit of myself and for our listeners, I was wondering if we could kick off the interview today uh, with you just explain to us what what that is sure yeah so um the the dental programs um are pretty much um five year five year long programs delivered across europe um and until we brexited that was you know we were regulated um for that five year length too uh, we still deliver our programs um to that length part of that um, is learning um some basic sciences trying to learn how those sciences relate and integrate to, to dental care and oral health care in the end. But at some point, we need to bring our students into um, a simulated environment, mm-hmm. an environment where they're actually learning to use all of the dental equipment, the drills, the lights, the chairs, the water spray, the x-ray equipment. Um, but we need to do that without patients. We need to do that for a period of time so that we can check that they're safe and they're competent before we then release them um, into the hospital environment to start treating patients. So it's quite a unique um, program type because in that five-year period, they are doing everything they need to do to become dental surgeons. And when they leave us, they are autonomous healthcare professionals. Um, And that's what makes the the BDS program quite unique um, across Europe. And it's such a significant challenge teaching people to to do these procedures, right? Because obviously the consequences of getting them wrong are quite significant. Mm. And I guess you're also, as you say, you can't just start off with patients straight away. Um, So they're almost limited in terms of how they can learn to carry out these procedures until they get to the point when they can actually do it on, on, on patients. And then obviously, even if they're, operating on patients, there must be a huge diversity in terms of the types of 
patients that you have coming in, such as their mouth sizes and uh, the the way their teeth, uh, you you know, uh, uh, are built. Mm -hmm. Um, So a really significant teaching challenge. And how have you seen teaching and education evolve within your career to, to kind of meet this challenge more effectively over time? Okay. Well, the traditional types of programs, we call them traditional because um, they were very much embedded in the way that educators taught dentistry and, and other medical subjects. Um, and, and so embedded that they were very difficult to change. So we still see some pockets of this across Europe, but traditionally programs taught sciences for a number of years and then students started to do some clinical work. And there was a very significant dichotomy in the program. It was very um, a very significant transition at the point where students stopped going into lecture theatres every day and they started seeing patients. Uh, quite a stressful transition, quite an abrupt transition as well. Um, and what we've been moving to over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years is a much more integrated approach to teaching. So we're now... Um, seeing many schools um, involving first-year students straight away with contact with the clinical environment, seeing patients for for non-invasive interactions, learning from their colleagues, um, and and actually bringing some of those those practical skills earlier on into the program to start to build build on those. We we see other digital and uh, innovations as well that help with that. So we have a lot more simulation. Um, augmented and virtual reality than we used to. So, you know, we don't have to have students sitting in a wet skills lab. We can start to engage them. We have a lot more online learning platforms that are dentistry dedicated so that they can learn using um, AR and VR on their phones. Um, I guess as far as you guys are concerned, we've got uh, VO. We've got the ability to actually draw them into exercises when they don't have to physically be on the clinic. And during COVID, that's been... um, a saviour really as well, being able to use those technologies. So just touching on VO, and I mean, I don't always touch on, on VO within these podcasts, but obviously you mentioned it there. So how do you how do you use VO within your um, teaching environment? Well, I'm I'm quite lucky that I work in quite a large team of educators across Europe and, and the wider world. So when I say we, um, I mean we as in the bigger, the bigger group. Um, we were actually having discussions this week again about how we can use VO more in a more targeted way here in the school at Cardiff. Mm. I'm quite excited about that. But uh, but I have spoken to a number of colleagues who are using VO in, in quite a wide variety of ways. Um, you know, from simply running an OSCE, uh, objectively structured clinical exam, where we can visually record students um, carrying out a particular assessment station. We can tag behaviours in real time and we can give them uh, quantitative feedback and the ability to go and, and look at their performance again. Um, but then I, I look at other colleagues uh, where we're actually teaching people to teach um, and they're using it to do teaching observations, which I guess is the roots of VO originally. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. When, when it was first being developed. Um, and that's where I've probably used it the most is in. Um, I like people's... that dentistry pun that you put in there about the root as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you <laughs> noticed that. <laughs> That'll keep coming. You'll probably miss some. <laughs> yeah, so it, it can be, I think the value is it can be used in so many ways. You've just got to be innovative enough to think of, of how you could use it, really. Fantastic. And the virtual reality thing is is fascinating as well. I, I read one of your research papers uh, recently where you was talking about how you have almost like a phantom head 
that uh, that the the students will operate on. But the challenge there is, I guess, the feel. Yeah, of the tooth. How do you simulate that feel along with the VR image? So it, it can provide some confidence, I guess, in terms of what you might be experiencing. But how do you then simulate the feel of of that procedure? Yeah, that's that's a real challenge, and. You know, if we go one extreme to the aviation industry and they use simulators for, to revalidate pilots on a regular basis, as soon as a pilot sits in that cockpit, that simulated cockpit, everything is the same apart from the fact that they're not in a real plane and they're not at altitude with several hundred yeah. um, passengers. But the way that everything responds is identical. But in dentistry, it doesn't really work that way because, you know, it's so physical. We have teeth we have drills spinning at 400,000 rpm with a water spray mm. um you know we have the the need for students to work in mirrors which are misting up we've got their light and the reflections so to try and mirror that in a simulator is really difficult it's a bit like trying to get a driving simulator um that behaves exactly in the same way that it does when you're driving a car as in the feel of the steering wheel dependent on the speed the road surface texture the noises it's actually really challenging. So you need to find something that is is a, a common ground, really, with with um, because if I got ten educators together, uh, they would not agree on the parameters to set for how much resistance a tissue should offer, or you know how it should feel to to drill a particular tooth structure. So it's really challenging. So, in terms of the students, how do you do that transition from simulation to real patients do you, one day do you just say right today you're doing a root canal or do you, <laughs> do you, or well, do you um, yeah I mean, I, mean, I mean what what tends to be the 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 first kind of procedure that that kind of bridges them into that into that yeah thing? it's a good it's a good question because because we talk about simulation now as in as in a, a digital innovation as in you know virtual simulation but really we've used simulation since the very beginning in our skills labs as you suggest with a, a phantom head and that's our, our simplest form of simulation. And and it very much does start on day one with, here is a phantom head, um, here are your hand pieces, and we spend a few hours learning how to hold them, how to use them. But before actually drilling on any teeth, we actually learn some handpiece skills. So we learn on the bench with, with how the hand pieces behave, how they cut, how we use mirrors, how we work with the mirror, you know, how we use our posture and how we control those hand pieces so that we're safe. And then we gradually build up the tasks um, to to more clinically relevant. But I think one of the the more recent uh, educational developments in the last five years is that certainly what my research groups are recommending across Europe is that we we don't just teach or mirror the clinical scenario. So a root canal, as you've mentioned, or a, a crown preparation, we don't just mirror that in the skills lab. What we do is we deconstruct it. We deconstruct the task to smaller tasks which we can start teaching earlier on, uh, which are easier for the students to comprehend and to develop competencies in. So that when they finally sit down to do those more complex procedures, the cognitive load is less, mm -hmm. the learning is deeper and greater. And we've actually been making more use of the skills environment from an earlier day anyway in the programs. So we will see a continued change in future years in terms of how we teach. And you still use lots of learning theories within um, your context. I was looking at one of the research papers that that you wrote, along with some of your colleagues, and in it you spoke about using Kolb's experiential learning theory quite significantly in, in how you develop 
um, training programs for for students to develop competencies. Could you maybe touch upon that a little bit and, and how that's integrated into your practice? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're not exempt from any other sphere of education, even though often things get uh, overridden a bit by the, the clinical environment. But we do have to think about the pedagogic approach that we're using. Um, and this is where, you know, cognitive load, deconstructed learning, um, situated learning, reflection on action, inaction, they all come to the fore, really. Um, it's a very stressful environment. There's a lot for the students to learn. And historically, it was quite a brutal environment. Students were put in a skills lab and they either performed or they didn't. And if they didn't, then they essentially went home. You know, they left the programs. But now we have a much more um, uh, forgiving approach, a much more um, kind of uh, neutral learning community, shall we say. So we're looking at a more learner-centered approach. Um, we're looking at different curriculum styles, which mean that we have to respect the social efficiency of our curricula. We've got a regulator in the UK who tells us what the students have to do, but we also have students sat in front of us who feel they, they want to learn in different ways and they have different learning needs. And on a very basic level, um, the, the learning cycles are really important to what we deliver. Um, I try to get my staff to understand that it isn't necessarily as straightforward as having a learning cycle. There are lots of little eddy currents of learning that are going mm. on, you know, peripherally inside and outside the classroom and the skills lab. But but our job really is to try and identify those and tease them out and to enable students to understand what they are as well so they can kind of situate their learning. Amazing. Um, in terms of how far the operative skills teaching environment has evolved over, over the course of your career, within your unique position as being someone who's kind of at the forefront of education within the world of dentistry, what do you think should happen to transform that environment further going forward? What would you like to see change to make make that environment even even better for future students? Um, what I'd like to see is is further integration of the curriculum. So mm. we find that many schools don't actually just teach dentistry. They teach other oral health professionals as well. They teach dental hygienists, dental therapists, dental technicians, dental nurses. And despite a lot of learning being shared, uh, learning events being shared, we don't really see much good practice by way of, of students being, uh, you know, learning as, as integrated clinical groups in the clinical environment. So I'd like to see, I have a vision of teaching um, in the clinical environment where we have clinical groups made up of students from all the programs of all the stages. Mm -hmm. They're almost like a mini dental practice. You know, they're, yes. you know, well, they're all learning just, together. Yeah. I was just going to say that surely, you know, you can learn the different skills in isolation, but once you're actually practicing as a dentist, you have a dental hygienist works alongside a dentist you know on a day-to-day -day basis so yeah there is absolutely absolutely and and there are so many educational reasons why having a group that, that's made up in that way is of value um you know from from simple logistics in terms of delivery of information and, and sharing patient care through to you know the the complexities the social complexities of the differences between a group of 10 students who are all from year four of a dental program and the same group they've been in since day one, or do we have a group where someone has autonomy as the only person in that group that's from a particular year of a particular program? And and I do see that those individuals become, um, they become more engaging in the group. They feel a degree of responsibility because 
Um, they can identify themselves better. They're not just pooled with the same identity as everyone else in the group. So there are some real benefits to that approach. It's just that it's logistically very difficult, which is why many schools um, haven't done it. And let me be clear, a lot of my colleagues across Europe want to do this. They want this approach, but it's just logistically very difficult. Mm. I uh, I was thinking how I could do this call today without touching upon the C word, but I think I'm going to have to bring it in, um, which is, of course, COVID. Uh your industry has been rocked significantly in the last couple of years by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that affect your uh, operative skills teaching environment? Um, has it made it easier to find more students coming into the, the profession or has it made it harder? Um, has it affected um, experienced practitioners uh, in, in a significant way? What, what what yeah. are the observations that you've seen? Yeah, it's, we've done some work on this. We've published some work on this, um, again, across Europe. And there was massive disruption initially, massive disruption, because uh, for a, a profession that creates aerosols, um, which was the, the biggest risk, we, we were possibly the most risky profession to be out there. But we were also one of the professions that already used uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, to a particularly high level anyway. Um, but what happened was, uh, in reaction to COVID, uh, many um, many of the regulators and the health bodies um, stipulated even even stricter requirements. It just meant that our clinics reduced activity whilst measures were put into place. Some of them stopped working. The knock-on effects of that in terms of productivity in the workplace for delivering patient care and students progressing through their programs was profound. Now that we're coming out the back of of the severity of the pandemic, we see that our PP levels are returning back to where they were, um, access is returning to normal, and um, increasingly, certainly in the UK, a lot of schools are almost business as usual in terms of how we deliver dentistry, and it's the same on the high street. But the impacts on those cohorts um, are potentially quite significant in terms of educational progression. Um, Fortunately, our regulator in the UK, the General Dental Council, was very clear that um, that all education providers had to um, they had a responsibility not to graduate students who um, demonstra- demonstrably had less experience than those that had gone before them, which put a lot of pressures onto the education providers. But it does mean that those students have graduated and and aren't labelled essentially as a COVID year. We've you know, certainly here at Cardiff, we know for sure we can demonstrate that they are not different. Um, I'm not quite sure the students realise how much extra work went in behind the scenes uh, and how much money, but uh, we're happy with that outcome. Um, and, and hopefully in the end, in the scheme of things, in people's careers, it's it's a minor blip. Yeah. And how, uh, obviously, the, the pandemic forced lots of people to start using new technology. You mentioned earlier about how VO was useful for mm. um, during the pandemic for, for things like OSCEs and, and, yeah. and other, other things. Have there been any other kind of technologies or or modes of practice within your field of education that have come to the fore during um, the pandemic? Yeah, and are you seeing so. um, and are you seeing schools, uh, dentistry schools, still continuing to use these modes more, or or have people gone back to business as usual in terms of the old ways of doing things? Yeah, and I think we could actually map that discussion not just to dentistry but to higher education because the 
as always is the case, we have pockets of educators who are innovating and pushing certain technologies and have been for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but they're pushing against closed doors often in terms of resource allocation and buy-in. But what COVID did do is it pushed people off the cliff. Um, it pushed people along that adoption curve in a way that, that nothing else could have. And as a result, we've seen technologies that have stuck and have stayed that actually would have been very challenging to, to roll out in a wider sense, even you know even in the way that we use uh, you know, um, team-based applications online to draw learning together. Mm. You know, the Google suite, the Microsoft suite of applications, Zoom, all of those different technologies were there. And, and uh, you know, even, even remote technologies, remote consultations um, in dentistry, they were all being developed. And some of my colleagues uh, when I was at Sheffield were publishing on that just as COVID hit. But what it did is it supported that work further mm. uh, and it's pushed the agenda um, to a greater degree. So I think now there's just more acceptance these technologies are there to stay and it's the same in higher education i think whilst schools pivoted and universities pivoted online they haven't completely pivoted back again i think there's been an understanding that some of this new blended the synchronous asynchronous blended approaches that people have had to think about in a way that they weren't forced to think about before has actually been quite a useful task amazing yeah uh it, i think it's just affected yeah, every sector in in such a such a similar way. Everyone has had to transform so rapidly, and then and we're seeing this kind of lag of of, of technology competence, um, kind of uh, clouded over into the, the way that our normal working operations go going forward in in schools, in classrooms, in universities. And it's just really interesting to hear that that's been similar in in the world of dentistry as well. Because out of all of the industries, I just think. You know what you guys do you've been affected probably more acutely than than many others mm-hmm. um yeah. i just want to say i'm conscious of time and uh, i just want to uh, end with with one final question if that's okay james for you um so in terms of this uh in terms of this this conversation we've been looking at the operative skills teaching environment um i know one of the other big piece of work that you you do is on curriculum reform. And I know you've spoken um, a little bit about that already in terms of what you'd like to see to, to transform um, education going forward. Just before we finish the call today, could you tell us a little bit about some of the elements of curriculum reform that, that you'd like to see um, implemented uh, going forward? Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. We, we've we been working as a group um, uh, across Europe of, of about nine partner universities um, over the last few years uh, with some funding from the Erasmus scheme within Europe to try and bring together a vision for what oral health professional education should be across Europe. And we have an open website for this, which is called um, ohealthedu, which is o-health-edu.org. And all of these resources are on there, including just, resources for the public. Can I just I'll, I'll put a link to that on the website. So when we publish oh, this podcast, I'll put a link to that and some of your research papers. So if anyone who's listening is interested in in seeing that, then then we'll make that easy for, for you. That that would be great. Um, and so on there, you can see the different resources. But we've got you know we've spent quite a lot of time putting together, for example, um, a glossary, an online glossary of educational dental terms 
that that um, you know as we're working as a team across Europe, people struggle to communicate. We, we often speak in English, but that isn't their first language. Um, so in order to harmonize education, we need a common language. Um, but there are some things, there are kind of six or seven things that we're really, in summary, just striving for. We're striving for inclusive entry criteria for programs, clear and inclusive entry criteria that cater for a diverse range of learners and their learning needs. We're looking for, as I mentioned before, an integrated curriculum. So I don't need to labor that point, but a, a curriculum which is also contemporary um, and is grounded in clinical and professional capability. Um, I guess we're also looking for curricula which are responsive to local population needs, mm. um, which is really important. And also curricula that now embed things like social responsibility and environmental sustainability. Um, and curricula also, which we have this here in the UK and in many countries in Europe, but not all, which is demonstrable independent quality assurance of the curriculum and the way that students progress through the programme. So um, they're quick to say, but they're much harder to implement, but it will really imagine education across across Europe. Well, that's fascinating um, stuff. And and yeah, like I said, we'll put a link um, on the website. I'm sure there'll Thank be you. people that'll be really interested in in looking at that and exploring this this further. And um, James, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you this morning. And thank you so much for your time. I know you're an incredibly busy man. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. That's and <laughs> I mostly appreciate the fact that you'll be supporting Wales in the Rugby World Cup next year. Well, yeah, you've made that step already. <laughs> <laughs> the words are in my mouth now. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. It's been, a, it's been a, a lovely chatting to you and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michal. All the best. Bye.